presenting sponsors of the Elevate podcast are the Expert Institute, Smart Advocate, and Hype Legal. The Expert Institute is your one-stop shop for all things expert for the high-end and successful trial lawyer. Expert Institute will locate experts in any subspecialty you need for any type of case you can imagine. They do all the legwork. They track down the experts. They provide you with all of their background information, their testifying history, their CVs, and they'll set up multiple expert interviews for a particular expert specialty for your case so you're not stuck just taking the first person who comes through the door. Highly recommend them. They've really upped our game in terms of our expert practice. Uh, Check them out at expertinstitute.com. Our show is also sponsored by Smart Advocate. Smart Advocate is case management software for trial lawyers, great for a small practice, medium-sized, or the largest mass tort class action type of practice. It's a very robust and customizable program. It's cloud-based or can be server-based depending upon your needs. We use the cloud-based format, which works great for us. It really can do anything you need it to do. It has functionality way beyond what we use, but it's also simple enough that you can figure it out quickly and, and the staff appreciates using it. So I would check them out at smartadvocate.com. Dot com if interested. And our third presenting sponsor is Hype Legal. It's a company that was founded by Tyler and Micah that are two of our earliest and best friends of our podcast. Uh, Raul and I are both friends with them. Prior to starting Hype Legal, they both worked at the highest levels at the um, high impact firm, which many trial lawyers have probably used and are accustomed with because they make probably the best trial animations and trial graphics out there. Uh, I got to the point where I was using them in almost every case that went to trial. That's how I got to know Micah and and Tyler. And then they left High Impact and took their 27 years of combined work in the trial space and put that to use doing digital marketing, web design for trial lawyers. If you check out their site at hypelegal.com, you can see some of the sites they've designed, including the website for the Elevate podcast. This is the Elevate podcast where trial lawyers learn, share, and grow. Let's talk about how we can elevate our trial practices, law firms, and lives. And now, here are your hosts, coming to you from coast to coast, trial lawyers, Ben Gideon and Rahul Ravipudi. Welcome to the Elevate Podcast. I'm Rahul Ravipudi. And I'm Ben Gideon. Ben, how are you? I'm doing great, Rahul. And for the uh, listeners at home who can't see you, you want to tell everybody where you're broadcasting from today? I'm broadcasting live from my minivan. So this is, I mean, this is probably the best venue we've ever had for this podcast. You know, I was prepared to uh, accept that you were in your your private jet, Raul. (laughs) Yeah, I'd like to call my minivan my private jet sometimes, so. (laughs) Well, from, from minivan to private jet, you know, you're... You're still a humble man. <laughs> thanks, Nick. I'm so glad to have Nick Raleigh on the podcast with us. Nick, thanks for joining us. Oh, thanks for having me. So, Nick, where are you right now? I'm in Big Sky, Montana, on, on our little ranch up here. It's fantastic. So, Nick, I want to kind of start to get the listeners to know a little bit about you and sort of how you balance your work life and what your goals are, really. And so those are some of the things we're going to talk about today. How many states have you tried cases in? Cases in? About 30. 
And you've done over 150 jury trials, if not more? The next one will be 160. Unbelievable. So one of the things I'm curious about is what have you experienced in different venues across the country relative to juries first? Do you feel like juries and the people that you interact with are different across the country or do they bear more similarities than than differences? I think there are more common threads than there are differences. Uh, if, if you know, you're in Iowa trying a case or in Florida or Massachusetts or Colorado or, you know, California, there are more common threads that weave us together than there are differences. So I, I, I found that if you can find those common threads that weave people together, your jurors are going to be very similar no matter where you are. Of course, there are some outliers, you know, and and there's better places to try a case than others historically. But I, I know you, Rahul, you've won some record-setting amazing verdicts in places that nobody ever thought you know would have been possible. And I've worked really hard to do the same. So when when I hear someone say, oh boy, yeah, you may get a, a big you know jury verdict in that state or that county, well, it's not going to happen here. Well, that, all that means is that hasn't happened yet because nobody's nobody's tried or nobody's tried hard enough. Nobody's tried enough times. So for those lawyers out there who are practicing in different places or considering, you know, trying a case in a venue that doesn't have a history of, of the verdicts that we like to hear about, go out there and change history. So Nick, th- there aren't that many people across the country who've tried as many uh, successful trials as you have in as many different venues. I've heard you talk a little bit about your past and upbringing and what kind of brought you to the point where you wanted to try cases for a living. Could you tell us a little bit more about that? Because I remember you had more of a kind of a little bit of a non-traditional approach to that. Well, I, I grew up and, you know, I was born in Iowa in a small town and and raised in Iowa for, for most of my childhood. I spent some time on a border town in Arizona called Nogales. And for, for the most part, you know, I, I just got to a point, you know, at, at an early age in my life where I loved being around people. I loved talking to people. I started working when I was very young and I, I always, you know, cared a lot about others. And so when, you know, I, after I went into the military, cause that was my only way to, you know, potentially go to college because other thing is I, I didn't do well in school. I was kicked out of every school from fourth grade through 11th grade. And then I graduated from like the school that, you know, for delinquents, it's, um, I literally was expelled from every school from fourth grade through 11th grade. Why was that? Was that behavioral issues or uh, just weren't interested in school or what? You know, school bored the hell out of me. You know, if, if we were talking about a subject, I'd get it pretty quick. And you know, then just having to sit there in one place in a chair, you know, and I guess be stuck within that structure was, was something I didn't didn't enjoy. I, I had a pretty pretty rough childhood, you know, with, with you know growing up and a dad who was you know pretty pretty tough. So you know, I didn't really respond well to discipline or you know teachers telling me what to do, and I you know didn't like bullies, and I, I got bullied a lot as a kid, and saw others get bullied, so. Most, um, I think every year I was, I was kicked out of school, expelled for, for fighting. It was always, a you know, some sort of physical altercation or, or a number of them. Have you ever gone back and seen any of your old teachers or people who kicked you out of school and said, Hey, look at me now. 
Well, they've actually reached, I've had some that have reached out to me, you know, in my, my hometown in Iowa, they did a newspaper storm story on me a few years back. I, I've gone to a number of different schools and talked to kids. It's something I like to do and, and tell, you know, told my story, said, Hey, kind of, you know, stay with school. And I know it's tough, but you know, this is the right place for you to be right now. And if you're, you know, looking at yourself in the mirror, and you think maybe you're never going to amount to anything, that's just not true. You know, stop telling yourself, you know, those lies because you're capable of being anything you want to be, you know, just because you're stuck in a rut right now and you may not like where you're at in life, you know, that could be the building block to a really great future. So I, I like speaking to young people and trying to motivate them by sharing, you know, my story and how I dealt with adversity growing up. And you know, I also told, you know, a lot of kids, including my own three oldest sons, that the military is a good option because it teaches you discipline and teaches you, you know, the different core values that we need to have in order to, you know, persevere and succeed at life, you know, whether it's, you know, professionally or as, you know, parents or spouses. So I think the, you know, the military's cert well, I know it's it's what what did it for me. That's what paved the way for me to be able to go to college and law school. And then um I practiced, you know, law you know, starting out um, doing medical malpractice cases because I had been a medic in the military. So I had six years of that experience. And so that I was pretty much off to the races once I finished law school. I started trying med mal cases. That's um, kind of how I cut my teeth. And if you can win a med mal case, then you know, take a swing at others. Yeah, that that's what I do. And I agree with you that they, they do tend to be challenging. Uh, did you start out trying them for the for the patients and families, or did you work on the defense side, or were you always on the uh, plaintiff side? So I started out in 1999 with my first clerking job, and I got certified as a law clerk, and I was you know doing plaintiffs med mal work. And then after, I guess it would have been my my last year of law school, I was still certified, and I got picked up by a med mal defense firm. And so I did that for a little bit, but I still was working on plaintiff's cases with a few different lawyers. We're out in um, the Inland Empire area. So, you know, Brian Brandt, Mike Hemming, Keith Holmes, you know, to name a few were, were lawyers that I was basically doing contract work as a certified law student working on their med mal cases. And I actually got to try a few cases before I even became a licensed attorney. So the when I took the bar exam, I was still working at La Follette Johnson and I passed the bar. Dennis Ames came in for lunch one day. You know, he's one of the named partners still to this day. And, and he's like, well, he said, um, you know, I actually hadn't passed the bar yet, but I'd taken the bar and you know, I was waiting on my results. And I knew I had passed the bar. I, I had no doubt about it. Not because I'm you know, smarter than anybody, but because I worked harder than anybody else. I, I kept track, you know, of, you know, all the different people that I went to law school with and the people that, that I met at the bar review course. And I just said, like, how many hours a day are you studying? And they say, oh, I'm studying eight. So I'd say, all right, I'm going to study 11. And I, I just, you know, made sure that I worked harder than, you know, the person in front of me, the person behind me, the person on my left, the person on my right. And what I've learned in life is that if you're willing to put in the work, you're going to get the results. So Dennis Ames, um, we're sitting in the, you know, little kitchen, you know, break area. He says, so how do you think you did on that bar exam? And I said, oh, I, I said, I passed. He goes, wow. He goes, well, you're pretty confident. And I said, well, no, I worked really hard. I, I know I passed. And he says, well, um, all right, well, you know, you've got yourself a, a job here. I had asked for a higher salary than, than what they normally started lawyers out at. And, and they, they had approved it. 
And he goes, well, you know, I mean, we're, we're starting you out at that, that higher salary. So I, I hope you're going to stick around for a few years. I said, oh, I said, I'm, I said, I'm here. I'm ready to start trying cases. And he, and he looks at me and he goes, well, um, you know, lawyers, um, you know, you gotta, gotta learn how to do the discovery, the law in motion and make appearances. And, and I said, I, I know how to do all that. I've been doing it full time now for a few years. So I'm ready to try cases. He goes, well, you're not going to be trying cases for, for a while. Usually it's about five years until, you know, a lawyer gets to cut his teeth on a jury trial. You know, maybe in between now and then you can do a, do an arbitration. And I looked at him, what? You gotta be kidding me. And I said, well, I said, that's, I said, I said, well, um, why don't you take one of your, this is me. I haven't even got my bar results yet. And I said, why don't, why don't you take, um, one or two of, best lawyers that you have in the firm and, and, um, put on a mock trial. I'll try the case against him. And then, and then you decide, and you, then you tell me whether you want me in a courtroom or not. And this guy, I mean, he was dumbfounded, you know, sitting there listening to this young kid who doesn't even have his bar results. Long and the short of it is the conversation didn't go well. You know, he, and I, I knew it didn't go well. And then Jeff Erickson, um, who was the managing partner called me into the office and I'd done, done some work for Duke DeHaas and, you know, been in some trials with him against Bruce Fagel at that point. Jeff says, Hey, he goes, so, um, you know, I, I wish you wouldn't have talked to Dennis Ames because now, um, you know, we, I mean, you got your job, but you have to agree not to expect to arbitrate a case or try a case for at least three years. And I said, that's fucking ridiculous. So he goes, well, I thought, you know, that would be your answer. And um, unless there's any way I can change your mind, he goes, you don't have a job here anymore. <laughs> and I said, okay. So I basically went home without a job that day. And at that point, I had just, I think it was, it was like the day after I swore in, because the conversation with Dennis Ames had happened the week before. Then I swore in in Department 1 in Riverside. Then I called up um, Rod Rittner at Patterson, Rittner, Lockwood, Gartner, and Jurich, another MedMal defense firm. And I said, hey, I said, I'm, I'm looking for a job, but I want to be able to do you know, my own caseload of plaintiff's cases. So they interviewed me and they said, listen, Kaiser won't send us any business. So you can take any Kaiser case you want and you can take any non-MedMal plaintiff case that you want. So within a year, I had my own caseload of about you know, 60 to 75 cases. And I was still doing, you know, med mal defense with, you know, Patterson, Rittner, Lockwood. Um, then I went out on my own. That firm, you know, split apart and I went out on my own. And then Rod Rittner, you know, came with me and he's been helping manage my Midwest practice for the past 15 years. How did you know so early on in your career that you, first of all, wanted to try cases, but also that you would be any good at it? Well, Jerry Spence represented Randy Weaver, who is from my hometown in Jefferson, Iowa. Jerry Spence ran, um, represented Randy Weaver. If you if you all remember the Ruby Ridge case. Sounds familiar. You old enough to remember that, Rahul? Hey, man, I'm older than you. <laughs> I know, but you look younger. Oh my God, you have not aged. So, you know, the, the, the whole town is like this, you know, crazy guy, Randy Weaver, who'd moved out to Ruby Ridge, Idaho. Everybody knew him as kind of a troublemaker in town. And now, you know, it was broadcast all over the news. There's this standoff and here's this crazy, you know, this crazy guy, you know, shooting at the FBI. And, you know, everybody said, you know, he, basically he's a bad guy, you know, and people, including my, my stepdad, who was the county sheriff, you know, he had his opinions about Randy Weaver and he, he goes, well, you know, I you know, hope they shoot that guy and this and that, and he deserves what he's going to get. And, and, um, 
you know, I'm you know, sitting there listening to all this day after day as this, you know, standoff is going on. And then um, Jerry Spence comes on TV and he tells a different story. And Jerry Spence ends up representing him. Randy Weaver then moves back to, to Jefferson, Iowa. I see him on a regular basis, you know, not that I know him. I never interacted with him. I know my dad arrested him a number of times for different things, but Jerry told a different story. And then I, you know, my grandmother, you know, got me the book. And, you know, when we'd be sitting at the supper table and Randy Weaver would come up, I'd stick up for him and I'd say, hey, you know, you got to hear the other side of the story here. You know, the government didn't have any business, you know, up there on his land doing what they did. And, and, they, and, they, and they entrapped him. I learned what entrapment was. And, and I started reading Jerry Spence books. Grandmother, who you know passed away at ninety-two, she was a well-read woman and a poet. She would, you know, anytime a Jerry Spence book would come out or an article in the news somewhere, she'd print it out for me. So I, I grew up um, just admiring this man. So when I was in law school, you know, I well, first of all, I, I was in the military and I, you know, had got a bachelor's degree in social psychology. I had I had no idea, you know, how I would get to law school. I just knew I wanted to do it someday. And then being a military medic, my, you know, plan was to, you know, do all my, you know, all the sciences and biochem and all the stuff that I that I'd need to do and take the MCAT and go to med school. But I'm out um in the middle of um some military training with a bunch of people and, you know, you're you know, going through, I mean, some of the tough, most, you know, difficult physical, you know, rigorous stuff of your life. And I'm sitting there and I'm talking to a friend, his name is um, Michael Myers. And he's like, ah, oh, so, you know, what are you going to do when we're done with all this? And I said, well, I'm going to, you know, finish my, my master's degree in sociology. Cause I was like a semester short, you know, from doing that. And, and I said, what are you going to do? He's gonna, he goes, oh, well, I'm going to go to law school. I said, oh, wow, law school. I said, that's cool. I want to go to law school someday, you know? Um, but so I said, what'd you get your pre-law degree in? And I'm 20 years old at the time. And he said, pre-law degree? He said, there's no such thing. I said, well, don't you need like some prerequisites? So I knew that I had to have a lot of prerequisites for med school. And he goes, he goes, you can get your you know degree in basket weaving as long as you have enough credits and take the LSAT. You know, you can, there, there is no such thing as a pre-law degree. I said, really? He goes, yeah, you got a bachelor's, right? I said, yeah, I do. And he said, well, take the LSAT. I said, well, how do I do that? So we, we finished our training that month and Myers and I met up and he gave me the form for the LSAT. He goes, here, I brought this for you. So I filled it out. I went back, did a bunch of other um, military training and um, took the LSAT in like dusty, you know, BDUs, your battle dress uniform when you're out in the field. And then, you know, applied to some law schools, started law school. It was like a, a dream that I had that, that I had never, you know, that there was, there was no, you know, plan or here are the steps I'm going to take. It just, you know, the stars aligned at the right moment. And next thing you know, I'm, I'm starting law school. And I, I knew that I wanted to be a trial lawyer if I was going to become a lawyer. So the question was, was how, you know, how am I going to get into a courtroom? And the experience I had as a, as a military medic really gave me, you know, the, the foot in the door that I needed. Because a lot of the lawyers, you know, out there, at least that I had encountered at the time, didn't know anything about medicine. And when you're doing medical negligence cases or personal injury cases, you have to understand medicine. So going through law school, I actually um, called Jerry Spence's trial lawyers college and said, hey, can I come out as an intern? Can I come out as, you know, and, you know, go to your, you know, go through your program? And they said, well, you have to have at least 10 jury trials. So the the moment I got licensed, I started trying cases and my 
you know, and my motto was I'll try any case anywhere against anyone if it's for, you know, for the right reason. So I started trying criminal defense cases, soft tissue cases. I mean, you name it. If it was in front of a jury, I, I'd take it and I'd do it. And, and I kind of started, started winning. And you know how it goes once you, you know, win a couple and people hear about you and they give you more. And I, you know, I've just tried pretty much on, on average, you know, um, except for the, the you know, time period, you know, over the past couple of years with COVID, I've done an average of 10 jury trials a year for, you know, my career, which is going on 20 years. So just taking a step back, um, is that, did you really want to go to Jerry Spence's trial college? And is that why you pushed to start trying cases early? Or did you already know you were going to be good at it before you even passed the bar? So I didn't know I was going to be good at it. I, I really didn't. Um, and I, when, when I, you know, started law school, I showed up and, you know, I remember the, you know, the first moment really is, is we walk into class and we all sit down and, you know, the professor, it was a torts class and, you know, he called somebody's name and said, okay, brief the case of, you know, whatever the case was and the hell is going on here? <laughs> called on different people. Fortunately, he didn't call on me. I pulled someone aside and I said, what's going on? I said, well, didn't you read the assignment? I mean, we had like 300 pages to read. What? What is this? You, you show up for your first day of class and you already have, you know, a bunch of work you're supposed to have done. So I had to, you know, go back and, and cram. And I was still, you know, in the military at the time that I started law school. So I, I, I started law school not knowing what the heck I was doing. And, you know, then I think it was the second semester that we started was it the second semester or the second year? I think the second year that we started appellate ad. But for the first year, I'd get called on to brief a case. And I mean, I, I was fumbling. I, I wasn't an eloquent speaker. Uh, and I would listen to the, you know, the student, you know, sitting in front of me, get up and brief a case. And they were clear, crisp, concise, eloquent, and engaging. And I, I felt like I, I was, you know, just at the you know, bottom of the brim. I, 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 I did not have confidence, you know, that I was going to be good at this. I was, I, I definitely felt like I was out of my league. And then appellate ad was the next year and Stephen King and I became good friends. If you, if you guys met Steve King and we ended up being appellate ad partners. And I, I started out, you know, in, in that, in that class. And again, I was, I don't know, maybe there, there were two other people that, you know, I was as good as everybody else was better, but I worked at it. And then I, I started doing Toastmasters. I'd go to, you know, nursing homes and different little places, go to these Toastmaster meetings and, you know, got better at public speaking. I, I was I was always good at talking to people. I was always good at arguing, but doing it in a public setting where everyone's looking at you and you also have to follow rules, it was, you know, what wasn't something I was good at. So, you know, I I, I did Toastmasters for two years in appellate ad. I, I was awarded the most improved advocate, you know. That's always like a backhanded compliment, isn't it? Exactly. Right, right. I'm like, what the fuck is this? I'm like, I, you know, towards the end, I'm like, I slayed it. I slayed it at the end, but a most improved advocate. And, you know, of course, you know, we, we live with, with our egos. It took me a while to, to, to realize that that was actually something really great because I, I started at a point where, where I wasn't good and I became good. And then getting certified, you know, as a law student in law school and being able to um, go into courtrooms and argue cases and actually do jury trials, I started figuring it out. 
and where where I became most proficient early on was cross examination and specifically with with respect to medical witnesses, medical experts. I'd be able to you know jump right in the ring with these guys and, and go toe to toe with them on the medicine and and then explain things in a way to jurors that you know that that others had a difficult time doing. Then I took um, I had VHS tapes of you know, Jerry Spence, you know, his tapes on Vordire and how to, how to select a jury. So I studied those. I probably watched them 50 different times. And then two years into, actually it was less than two years into my practice. I was at a orthopedic spine surgeon's office by the name of Ted Goldstein. You might remember Ted Goldstein, Rahul is a, you know, top-notch guy who was um, out of Beverly Hills actually. And I ended up Having him as an expert on the case, the, I still remember it. It's um, lady's name was Jamie Nandino. And there was a doctor who had really botched her surgery, so Ted ends up being the expert, and I'm and I go out to you know his office to go over the imaging and look at the films and get ready for the trial. And as we're sitting there going over the films, he goes, "Hey, why, why don't you come into my office?" He brings me into his office and sits me down, and you know just wants to get to know me. And I'm like, all right, this is. This is cool, right? I mean, here's this top spine surgeon wants to wants to get to know me, and I look and right behind him, sitting sitting you know behind his chair is a picture of him and Jerry Spence, and they're like they've got their arms around each other like a big bear hug, and they're smiling for the photo. God, that's Jerry Spence. I said, I said, you know Jerry Spence? He goes, Yeah. He said, Actually, that's that's why I wanted to bring you back here. I really think um, he'd like to meet you. I said, Well, I've you know called you know, their college and talk to them. And he goes, well, have you ever talked to Jerry? I said, no. I said, I couldn't get through to him. And he goes, well, let's call him. Dialed the number and Jerry answered the phone. He goes, hi, Ted, what are you doing? And he goes, well, I've got this young lawyer here from, you know, from Iowa. And I, I think, I think you're going to like this kid. Do you have any, you know, have any openings at your ranch? And he goes, well, the deadline's passed, but you know, have him fill out an application and send it directly to me. And so I got all the info. I sent it and a week and a half later, found out I was accepted to the trial lawyers college. So he, you know, I went out there and learned a lot more about being a trial lawyer. And then by that time, I think, you know, within a year after that, I probably had 20 jury trials under my belt. And, you know, a bunch of them were, were med mal verdicts. You know, the rest kind of just unfolded over the years. In the course of all of those trials, are there a couple that kind of stand out as being more memorable or, or, or kind of turning points for you or some where you learned something that you carried with you? Sure. Um, the criminal defense cases I've done, I've, I've done a number of those. I've, I've never lost one. I've always got acquittals on all the criminal defense cases I've done. Those stand out a lot. They, I mean, to, to me, when you, when you actually get to play a part in giving a person back their their life and their liberty and keeping them from being incarcerated or having a felony, you know, charge that that's going to live with them forever. That's going to take away their ability to vote. And that's just going to mark them in a bad way. You know, when they're, you know, being wrongfully or overzealously prosecuted, that's, that's a, that's a feeling um, that lasts a lot longer than, you know, getting a big jury verdict in terms of the civil cases, the, um, the ones that are most memorable are the cases that I've lost the cases where, you know, I, I've walked in and either, you know, got, got defensed. I have 13 cases that I've lost in my career. And, you know, a few of those are, you know, you can say, well, it was, you know, a bad case or, oh, the client got caught, you know, um, you know, not telling the truth about something or, you know, our experts collapsed or, you know, the, 
judge screwed us or the, you know, we had a bad jury. You can always, you know, come up with those reasons for getting a bad result. And, and certainly that, you know, sometimes that happens, but there, there are a few of those cases that I lost because I didn't do the the job that I should have done. You know, maybe I was too cocky or I, I went in, you know, I went too hard against some witnesses and, or didn't spend the time with my client that I should have, or tried to, you know, convince jurors that, you know, a, mil- a million dollar life care plan, you know, was something that they should, you know, award as damages in their verdict when the life care plan really didn't have credibility. And, you know, and I, and I knew as I was doing it where I could just feel, God, this just doesn't feel right. You know, and I kept going and, and lost credibility with the jury or, um, you know, where I was just biting off more than I can chew. So the, the, the most memorable cases are the ones that I've lost. The, um, the ones that, you know, that, that I like to think about, because of course we don't like to think about our losses. If we don't think about our losses, then we're not going to learn and we're not going to grow. <clears throat> the ones that, that I've won that I feel really good about, I, I think the, the biggest is the Sophia Blunt case. It was a case tried up in San Luis Obispo and Michaels and, and Lou, it was actually Michaels and Watkins at the time. So Phil Michaels and Shirley Watkins, who are, you know, top med mal birth injury lawyers, they, they called me up and there was a case going to trial within a matter of, of a few weeks up in San Luis Obispo. And it was a, a little girl with spastic quadriplegia. She had, um, you know, ended up not being delivered, you know, in time. And, you know, the doctor was, I don't know whether it was, you know, out on the golf course or at a restaurant or, you know, just just hanging out at home watching movies, who who knows? But he he wasn't there paying attention to this, you know, little baby who was still inside her her mommy, you know, going through a, a really, really rough labor and delivery. And and if you looked at the the fetal monitoring strips, I mean that little baby was just crying out for help and all she needed was a C section to save her life. Well they delayed, delayed, delayed for, for more than three hours and it got to the point where that little baby had been deprived of oxygen so bad that it permanently damaged her brain. And so when she came out, she was barely alive, barely. And then to make things worse when they intubated her so that they could get some oxygen into her body and into her bloodstream, into her brain. They put the tube in the wrong place. So she ended up, you know, with permanent brain damage and, and, you know, it was a spastic quadriplegic and, and will be, you know, forever. So I, so I get asked to do this case. I'm like, well, why, why, why am I being asked to do this case? And as it turned out, nobody had ever won a medical malpractice case up there before. And nobody had won a big verdict before. You know, and, and Phil Michaels, he goes, listen, he goes, I'm in my seventies now. And, you know, I, you know, I've heard about you and I've, you know, looked, looked at your, you know, looked at your trial record. Said, I, I thought maybe I'd send you up, you know, unleash you on these guys. And I said, well, he goes, what do you need to review? I said, do you have experts? He goes, yeah, we've got experts. I said, are they good experts? He goes, yeah, they're good experts. I said, let me meet the client. Let me meet Sophia and her mom, um, Jennifer. So I met them. And, you know, within two minutes, I said, okay, I'll do the trial. So within a matter of, you know, two to three weeks, I was up there in San Luis Obispo picking a jury on that case. And they refused to pay the $1 million insurance policy for this doctor. And the, um, the hospital had, had refused to pay their, their limits, whatever it was. You know, it was like $4 million. And the long and the short of it is, is that after Vordar, the hospital grabbed all their boxes and they paid the maximum limits and they walked out and Dr. Haupt, H-A-U-P-T, he was still in the case. And then um, 
we tried the case. It was three and a half weeks. It was, you know, they had experts coming in to, you know, from Stanford and, you know, all the top places saying there was no violation of the standard of care. And, you know, the, actually not only that, but the care provided to this, this mother and infant was extraordinary and all the bullshit you hear when you're doing a med mal case, you know what I'm talking about, Ben. And, um, I had started the trial and I told the, told the jurors in opening that, you know, the, an appropriate verdict would have been like, I don't know, 15, 15 to 20 million. I don't remember the exact number. And by the time closing came around, I said, no, it should be higher. And I told the jurors that the verdict should be 78 million. And they came back with 74 and a half. And then Dr. Haupt had now was now exposed beyond his policy limits because his insurance company refused to pay those. And by the way, I gave doc, I gave him the opportunity when I showed up, I said, okay, I said, pay the million. And they thumbed their nose at me. So Dr. Haupt ended up um, suing his insurance company, the doctor's company, for failing to pay his, his limits. And Dr. Haupt actually ended up, I think, in a, um, I believe, I'm not, I'm not sure, um, but as an inpatient at UCLA in their, you know, psychiatric unit because he had such a breakdown, you know, so it ruined his career in practice you know, as it should have. But Dr. Haupt sued his insurance company. I connected him with Rick Friedman and Mike Bedart. And Dr. Haupt got $20 million against his insurance company for bad faith. When Micra, you know, reduced, um, I actually filed motions to have a have an actual trial on whether there was a rational basis for Micra. And the judge granted my request for that trial and was not reducing the verdict because the verdict would have been reduced to, you know, well under $10 million. And so we ended up, um, you know, getting ready for this trial where we're going to have a bench trial on the issue of Micra and, and, you know, present a bunch of evidence to show why, why this law, you know, was out of date. And we had a judge who I think would have, would have ruled Micra unconstitutional and given us something to, you know, take all the way up to the California Supreme Court. For those who aren't in California, what can you explain what Micra says? Yeah, what Micra is is a two hundred and fifty thousand dollar cap on. It's a one size fits all cap on non economic damages, quality of life damages, um, the the value of you know what it is to live in a body that will never ever work. You know, to live with spastic quadriplegia to never be able to eat, drink, use the bathroom yourself, walk, talk, get married, have a family, to live in a body that doesn't work for the rest of your life. Um, the value of that is $250,000 in the state of California because of a 1975 law that has not been changed to the tune of $1. It's, I mean, we're, it's, it's almost 50 years this law has never been changed. So that's what Sophia's you know, pain, suffering, loss of enjoyment of life, emotional distress, inconvenience. All of that disfigurement is worth in California. It's the most regressive medical negligence law in American history. So um, I thought we had a chance of changing it. And the defense, I think, saw the writing on the wall. So we went to a mediation and the case was resolved for more money than we would have got if the case had been reduced. But of course, not as much money as we would have got for Sophia if the case would have ended up um, you know, prevailing. On the micro issue, the point, the reason why I'm telling you all this is that Dr. Haupt ended up with more money than Sophia Blunt. So his emotional distress and what he went through because his insurance company put him through this trial and didn't pay 
you know, the Blunt family, what they should have, his case was worth more than the little girl who, you know, was sentenced to a life of spastic quadriplegia and disability. So that's um, the most memorable case that that I've won because it's um, still to this day, you know, it, it's something that I think about. You know, I think about how, you know, how wrong that is. And, you know, in, in that regard, we we have a, a ballot measure called the Fairness for Injured Patients Act that Courtney and I have about $6 million of our own money into, both um, getting it qualified for the 2022 ballot in, in California that'll hopefully change that law. And we've also um, produced a movie called Making a Killing that should be it's being reviewed by Netflix right now, and it's been submitted to Sundance that exposes this law. So hopefully, um, you know, that changes. And anybody who's listening to this, if you can get on fairnessact.com, that's fairnessactact.com and read about it and get involved and donate anything, that'd be really awesome. You know, so far we're, we're um, you know, except for, for a handful of good people that have, that have helped out, we're, you know, kind of funding this on our own. I believe we're going to win it. What's your ballot measure trying to accomplish and what will it change relative to MICRA? Sure. What it will change is it will adjust the current $250,000 cap from 1975 up to current dollars. So it'll be, you know, a little over 1.2 million. But if there is a case of wrongful death or catastrophic injury, like a Sophia Blunt type injury, then the judge and jury get to make the decision on a case-by-case basis whether or not it's appropriate to award damages above the cap. It also changes the attorney's fees provisions of MICRA because right now it's it's set by statute. So on these $250,000 cases, lawyers make 40% of the first $50,000, one-third of the next $50,000, 25% of the next 500,000. And then it changes, you know, after that. And what this law will do is it will require judges to approve attorney's fees in every medical negligence case. So the same way we, we submit a minor's comp, right? So that judges make sure that the attorney's fees that are charged to a minor are reasonable and match up with the actual work you know that a law firm has put into a case and and what they've expended to prosecute a case that it it requires judicial approval which is going to prevent lawyers from you know taking advantage of you know of people which I don't think happens that often but every once in a while it does but it will also make sure that lawyers get you know fairly compensated with judicial review you know, in cases where they put in a lot of time and, and where they've where they put a thousand hours into prosecuting a medical negligence case, because it, it balances things out. Because right now, if you file a medical negligence case, an insurance company appoints a big top, you know, insurance defense firm, and they bill, you know, seven hundred and fifty or a thousand dollars an hour, and and they have this unlimited war chest of money to you know to beat up the patient. And that's something that, I mean, tips the scales of justice in favor of, you know, the, the wrongdoers. So hopefully that this, um, this provision will change that. The other thing that it does is the law, as it stands right now, doesn't do anything to protect physicians from frivolous or meritless lawsuits. So I wrote a provision in there because I have a, a lot of um, 
a lot of friends who are healthcare professionals. I mean, family members and, you know, a lot of our closest friends are physicians. And I, I'm, I, I know something we all share is, is we don't believe in and, and we, we dislike frivolous lawsuits. We, we dislike frivolous defenses to meritorious lawsuits. So what you have to do now, this law passes, is if you have a medical negligence case, then you have to file an affidavit under oath saying, I have an expert witness, an expert witness who supports this case. And you lay out the elements of this ca- of the case so that you don't have people filing lawsuits that shouldn't be filed. So this law will decrease the amount of lawsuits that are being filed that shouldn't be filed. So it gives doctors great protection. And if you do file a lawsuit without having an expert witness, then that you have to pay the other side's attorney's fees. So there's a consequence. So that's going to make sure that the cases that shouldn't be filed are not filed and that the cases that should be filed actually give the patients and the families you know, a fair shot at justice. If there's a need to do discovery in order to get an expert witness, then that's something you can include in the declaration. So there's so, so there's a way that if it's like, hey, there's there's not enough time and we've got to file this to preserve the statute, then you know you can do that. You just have to be honest about it in, in the declaration. Because right now, you and I, I mean, the three of us could go out and file 500 medical negligence cases tomorrow without an expert witness. And we don't have to disclose whether or not we have an expert until 50 days before trial. So that gives us, it means we can just go shake the tree and see, see what falls out. And that, that's not fair. That's not the way that the cases should be handled. So it, it's a very balanced um, law, the way that we've written it. The other thing is um, there's something called the collateral source rule. And the collateral source rule means that, you know, if I took your headphones right now, Rahul, and I negligently, you know, destroyed them, you'd turn to me and say, hey, hey, Nick, you know, you, you smashed my headphones up. You got to buy me a new pair. I don't get to say, "Hey, you know what, Rahul? You have insurance. When 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 you bought those those insurance or those um headphones at Target or Amazon, you you paid the extra five bucks and you got insurance. So I don't have to pay for those because you got insurance. You say sorry. You don't sorry, Nick. You're the one who ruined my headphones. You don't get the benefit of the insurance that I paid for. Well, in medical malpractice cases, I do. In medical malpractice cases, if if I injure you and you end up with $5 million in medical bills, I get the benefit of all of your healthcare coverage. It's called the abrogation of the collateral source rule, which is something they wrote into MICRA in 1975. The consequence of that is, is that when we have these people that are catastrophically injured and they can't collect non-economic damages that are, that are sufficient, the attorney's fees that come out of the case end up coming out of the you know, money that would be set aside to pay the medical care costs. So that doesn't happen. Um, the, the, the medical care costs don't get paid. So who bears the burden of that? We do as taxpayers. Our own health insurance has to bear the burden of that. So the wrongdoers and the medical malpractice insurance companies that, you know, are these conglomerates that, that make um, billions and billions of dollars every year, these guys are sitting there going, shit, we, we don't have to front the bill. We can push that, that burden onto everybody else. And they just get richer and richer. So we're, we're fixing that and putting the collateral source rule back in place. The other thing that the ballot measure does is periodic payments. Just imagine that you go out and you, you finally, you, you, you fight all the adversity and you win a medical negligence case and you get a judgment from, from the court and it's for $5 million. You've got a you know, person in a wheelchair for the rest of their life. You get a $5 million judgment. Well, under this 1975 law, the defense can come in and say, well, your honor, we're not going to pay that judgment. There, there's a mandatory um, provision in MICRA that allows us to just make payments on it. So 
instead of giving that injured person that $5 million, which they can then invest and, you know, do what they need to do make, to make sure they have the, the care they're going to need for the rest of their life. Instead, they, they, you know, set up a, you know, periodic payments annuity and they pay them maybe $7,000 a month. So the insurance company who's obligated to pay now is able to make money off, you know, they, they can take that $5 million and take $4 million of it and continue to invest it and make profit. That's wrong. And the injured person can't. So there's there's no other law out there that, that allows you to, you know, break up payments that way on a judgment. So, you know, Mauro Fiore, I know recently, you know, won a MedMal case, got a million dollar result. The insurance company is a million dollars. And the defense thumbed their nose at him and said, okay, well, we're just going to pay that in periodic payments. So now his client's getting like $7,000 a month. It's, it's insane. So hopefully the Fairness for Injured Patients Act gets the job done and we change this most horrific, regressive medical negligence law in 2022. Your analogy on my headphones was perfect, Nick, because if you did that negligently under MICRA, little did you know these were a gift. So I would get $0 under MICRA. Hey, there's a couple of things I wanted to ask you about. Yeah. Just falling back to my first uh, round of questions. What have you learned are sort of consistent characteristics or, or traits through all of your jury trials across the country that different jurors have? They all care about something and they all care about their communities. If, um, if you can get jurors to care about the people that we're representing, you know, that injury victim, their family, you know, whoever that human is, then the the possibilities are endless. So jurors are caring people. They're, they're, they're good, good people. And they want to do the right thing. And if, if we go into a jury trial, looking at them that way, looking at them with admiration, with love and respect, and and we show that to them unconditionally, we're going to get it back. If we go into a jury trial and we're looking for the bad ones and we're, you know, looking for the, you know, the, the jurors that we want to kick off because they're no good or they're rotten or they're going to screw us. And that's the way we think about them. And that's the way we feel about them. You know, then, you know, we're, we're projecting that on them and that's going to be, you know, that prophecy is going to come true. So if we change our, the, the way that we feel and think about jurors, it's, it's going to change the results that we get. And that, you know, if, if you go in front of a jury, Rahul, and I mean, you're, you're an eth- ethnic looking guy. I mean, you're, you're tall, dark, and handsome, but, you know, you, you walk in front of a, you know, jury in Iowa, a bunch of white farmers, and they're going to be like, who's this, who's this brown guy, right? Well, if you walk in there thinking that, then that's the way they're going to look at you. But if you walk in there going, man, these are wonderful, awesome people, and, and, um, and they're going to love me, you know, for who I am, and you get up and you just be yourself, and I know you, you've, you've done that many times. You're, you're going to get a great result. They're going to love you for who you are. But just on that, so if I if I feel good about myself and I feel good about my case, and that doesn't change, but I walk into a room and just to pick the starkest of, of hypotheticals, mm-hmm. the first people in the box are openly hostile racists, and they just don't like me, not because I don't like myself or I'm worried about it. They just don't like me. Is that fixable? It is. It is, man. I think you, you, you've just got to give them love. 
And of course, you, you've got to excuse the jurors that need to be excused if, if, that, if that's possible. But you have to operate with the presumption that you're going to be stuck with all of them. And so if you're going to be stuck with them, then you've got to find those common threads. And I, and I think that, that, that when you spend time with people, and I know this from you know, the different traveling I've done around the world, you know, and, and I'm, I've done a lot of traveling different countries, you know, spent time praying in, you know, every, you know, temple or mosque or church you can imagine. I, I try to find God and spirituality everywhere I go. When you spend time with people, the, the colors fade, you know, and you realize how, how alike you are. And you, um, I, I think that you have jurors that might have those, you know, the, that might have that racism within them. And once they get to know who you are, your ver- verdict might be, 10 times higher than if you were a white guy because they're going to they're going to change and they're going to feel good about changing. But yeah, if you have people that are openly hostile, I've, you know, I I've I had a case in Modesto um, that Courtney and I did. We we hit a, you know, 14 million dollar verdict all non-economic damages for an immigrant farm worker who was killed in a car wreck and the um Scott McDonald was the lawyer who tried it. Good guy, you know. I mean, good good defense lawyer, but um we started out Ward Iron and said, listen, we're, we're in Modesto and you know, everybody on this jury is white. I'm representing an immigrant farm worker and his wife's going to testify in Spanish. Some people, um, because of you know, how they've been raised or, or their, you know, their own thoughts, their own opinions, or just stuff that, that maybe they've heard at the supper table or heard their grandparents speak of, have some racism within them. And the, and the truth is that if this was a, you know, a white man who was a school teacher who got wiped out and killed in a in a motor vehicle collision versus a immigrant, you know, Hispanic farm worker, you know, the white family would would end up with more of a jury verdict. They the case would be worth more for the white people. You know, that's that's my concern here. You know, brutal honesty. Is there anyone, you know, is is that would that be true with you? We really need to know. And I looked around and this young girl raised her hand, you know, pretty pretty young gal. And she says, well, um, my family doesn't, you know, they, they don't like, um, Hispanics. And I've heard a lot of that. I said, I really appreciate you having the courage to talk about that with us. Um, you think that would make this a case where you'd put less value on this family? You'd have to go back, you know, to your family and they'd, you know, learn about this verdict or read about it in the paper and tell them what you did. Is that something would be difficult for you? And she goes, yeah. You think if he was a, a white man that the verdict would be higher? Yeah. And I, anyone else? And there were other jurors that raised their hand. And, you know, and, and I didn't get upset and I wasn't disappointed in them. I wasn't angry. I was appreciative. I was thankful. You know, they all ended up getting excused for cause. The rest of the jurors, they drove the verdict up because of that. So, you know, and, and is, is the jurors that got excused left the courtroom? I could tell, I could feel that their racism was changing. You know, they, they saw that they were the minority and, and they weren't proud, you know, of, of what they had said, but they were, they were, they were honest. And so I, I think that, you know, if, if you take the right approach and, and I showed them love and appreciation and, and as, as they walked out, I, I admired them, you know, for, for their courage and their honesty. So I don't know if that answers the question, but. Yeah, it does. I mean, well, two things first, um, thanks for sharing that. Cause that is super inspiring to, I think anybody who's listening. And second, the way you did that, uh, uh, demonstration in Modesto, I think that really is the perfect way to, to get jurors 
talking and feeling comfortable is really have to make them feel like it's a safe environment to talk. And when you do something like that, you're going to get that honesty that you want. And the moment you cross-examine them on on their own feelings is the moment you're going to lose any ability to learn about those people and probably bring your verdict down. Yeah. So I had a totally different question. Sure. I think a lot of people are always worried about what happens when you lose a case and how do you recover from it? And what sort of battle scars does it leave? Any any thoughts on that uh, that you can uh, share with others about how you recover from a loss and and whether that has any impact on the next trial you have or the following trials? So one of the, the lawyers that, that I've looked up to throughout my career is your partner, Brian Panish. And, you know, I mean, Brian and, and you guys, you, you win... You win trials, I mean, left and right, big ones, record-setting verdicts all the time. But the thing I respect about Brian is that he tries tough cases, and you try tough cases. There was um, Brian got a verdict that he wasn't happy with. It was a really, really tough case. And, and um, you know, being Brian Panish, he could have said no to trying that case. But he went in, and he did it anyways. And, and he didn't get the result that he wanted. Called me up and, you know, he goes, yeah, because, you know, we talk when he's in trial. When I'm in trial, I, you know, communicate with him. And, you know, he's helped me out a number of times. And so there, there are some verdicts I've got that, that, I, that, that I owe to Brian because he's just done some really amazing things. Um, one was the chicken suit case where um, Coach Baxter from USC actually um, testified via video in the court, Brian set that up and that that's what made the case. That was the turning point. And I didn't even know, you know, coach Baxter was there, was a witness, but he was the key witness. And in the middle of the trial, I was talking to Brian about it and he goes, Oh, he goes, I know coach Baxter. Let me check this out. And he called me back. He goes, Oh yeah. And he, you know, got him set up to testify for me like the morning, you know, he was leaving for vacation. Anyhow, um, you know, I called, I called Brian back and like, Hey man, how you doing? And he goes, ah, you know, I'm, you know, I was bummed out. So I drove over to his house, knocked on the door, and I went in and, you know, just spent time with him just to cheer him up. Because, I mean, if Brian Panish doesn't get the result on a case that he wants, everybody's talking about it, right? Or if, you know, if I try a case, you try a case. It's it just everybody likes to talk about, you know, uh, those of us who, who try big cases and get, get great results. You, you have people who, who are happy to see you lose, and that's sad. You know, I, I have worked really, really hard to to want to see others succeed more than me. I mean, Rahul, when you know you you hit that big, you know, giant, you know, hundred plus million dollar monster verdict. I, I mean, I I was jumping and clicking my heels. I, I want to see you know I want to see lawyers succeed. You know, beyond my imagination. So I went in and you know to cheer Brian up. You know what he was doing? He, he had a bunch of boxes out and he was preparing for his next trial. He was preparing for his next trial. He wasn't, you know, he wasn't drinking. He wasn't, I mean, he did have a football game going on you know, on his screen, but, you know, Gary Dordick, when, when, you know, Gary Dordick tries tough cases, Rick Friedman tries tough cases. And when, when they don't get the result they want, they just start preparing for the next one. And that's what I do. And that's, that's what I've been doing for a long time. You know, when, and, and if I get a result, you know, I lose a case, then I, I write down what I would have done differently. You know, where, where are my mistakes? I could find all the, you know, other people to blame, but where's my fault in this? And I find a way to take 100 responsibility for that loss. And I use it as a strength, as a building block to win my next case. I won, or I lost 
three jury trials in a row once. And I, you know, thought of just throwing in the towel. That's it. You know, I suck. Finally, it's all caught up to me. You know, I've been a, I've never been a good trial lawyer. I've just been getting lucky. I lost three trials in a row. And then I won a big one because it was, it was when I finally sat down and looked at those three trials and found, you know, where it is that I could have done better. And I went in on that fourth trial and I was humble. I was kind and in the cross examinations where I normally might have really gone hard against, you know, an expert or an adverse witness, I was saw and I ended up with an epic result. So, just to answer your question, when you lose, what may seem like a curse can actually turn into a blessing. Losing cases is something that you have to do if you truly want to win. You, you can't, you, you don't, you're, you're not a winner until you've actually really tried some tough cases, taken some tough, some tough beatings and picked yourself back up again. That's that what, that's what makes a great trial lawyer. And then being honest and open about your losses, you know, being able to talk openly about it. Like, Hey, yeah, shit. Wow. Just got my ass kicked. The the case I just tried in Colorado, I was swinging for an eight figure verdict. I got 4 million. They had offered 3 million three weeks before trial. I only beat them by a million. I don't consider that a win. And I, right away, I started looking at like, what could I have done differently in that case? Because that, you know, the case was worth more. Nick, you've given us so much time and we really appreciate it. Just, do you have time for one more question? Yeah, of course. So I'm I'm interested in how you sustained the pace of the number of trials you do, complex trials per year. You've got a family, obviously, and um, the physical demands, also the stress that goes along with doing what you do. How do you balance all of that and maintain a decent quality of life for yourself and your family? I eat healthy. When I'm in trial, I have meals that are pre-planned and pre-prepared. So we bring our own lunch. Um, There's a place called Sakara, S-A-K-A-R-A. You can order, you know, a whole bunch of food in advance. And so we, you know, pack our own lunches. I work out every morning when I'm in trial. I get up really, really early. I don't stay up late. And I I get most of my case prepared before I even start. So if I've, you know, if I've got a three-week trial and I've got these witnesses, I have all the work done ahead of time. I have my opening statement and most of my closing argument done, you know, before we actually start the case. So it's, um, you know, it, it, it's it's really something that then just flows seamlessly. Of course, you're always going to have your bumps in the road and the, and the you know, curveballs that are thrown at you that you have to deal with, but they're much easier to deal with if you're getting good sleep, if you're eating healthy, drinking a lot of water. I don't drink soda pop, um, drink water all throughout the day in trial. And then when I am done with trial, I am done. And I spend time with my family and I spend a lot of time outdoors, whether it's the summer or the winter, you know, get outside, sitting in an office, sitting in a chair, it's not healthy. So I, I'm not a, I'm not an office lawyer. You won't find me in an office. If I'm, you know, not in a courtroom and I'm homeschooling my kids, exercising, traveling. So I'm, I'm living life unless I'm in a courtroom. And when I am in a courtroom trying a case, it, it truly is um, my favorite place to be. So it, I think that makes it easy. You know, lawyers are like, oh my God, I got to go to trial and they stress about it. How about just, um, you know, reframing that, flip the script. You're going to trial. Wow. That's amazing. There's no place I'd rather be. I think that's a great way to conclude our show today. What do you think, Rahul? I think so, Nick. Thanks so much for joining us. Yeah. Thanks for having me, guys. Sure. Nice to see you. For more information about today's guests and the topics discussed on the show, please visit our website at www.elevate.net. 
That's E-L-A-W-B-A-T-E dot net, where you'll find guest profiles and show notes, and you can continue the conversation by joining our Facebook group. And if you enjoyed today's show, we hope that you'll subscribe and consider giving us a five-star review. So for now, keep on working to elevate your trial law practice, and we'll see you back again soon.